And now, a special edition of the Toddcast Podcast. Hello. Hey, Todd, it's Perkins. Hey, Perkins. Right on. How you doing, man? Good afternoon. I'm doing good. How about you? Dude, thank you. I'm doing really well. Thank you, man, for, for taking some time here to join us uh, in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, obviously, huge fan of, uh, man, all of your bands, all the stuff you've done over the years. Thank you. I was going over the list with my buddy yesterday to some of the bands you might not have heard of, but it's been probably about 10 or 11 bands that I've fully committed time and, and got into and got surrounded by some good musicians and yeah. uh, a lot of I, I'm looking through the stuff and kind of just, you know, preparing for this chat and going like, why did I not know he did stuff with Mike Watt? How, how did that, how did that slip by me? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why? You know, I met him in 1985, 1986, James played with Firehose. Okay. And uh, I was fascinated with the rhythm section of the Minutemen. And of course, they never got to see him, but uh, the Firehose, the burning, you know, Raging Full On record, they were playing... Uh, an LA gig, and I got a chance to hang with George, and and then Mike walked up and gave me a big bear hug, and we've been buddies ever since. Awesome, yeah, really cool guy. He's the Godfather. Yeah, of course. I mean, and and over the years, I mean, just kind of fl- sl- sifting through some of this stuff, and there's actually some fan questions I want to get to that involves specifically the the rage against the machine track that you did some percussion on, but of course you did stuff with uh, you know the Chili Peppers, and you played like tours or at least a date or some dates with instead of Chad Smith, you're replacing the Chili's drummer. Yeah, the Fushante's first show back That's three months ago. Awesome, dude. Do they just reach out and like, hey, man, you got time to come up on this date? Or like, how does that happen? Exactly. Well, the L.A. scene from 1986 was a, a lot of separate camps, but we all slept in the same tent. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well those said. guys were, you know, Fishbone and, and Chili Peppers and Minuteman and X. You know, they had some years on me. I was only 18 in 86, but uh, they were in their mid-20s. Yeah. But James was playing gigs with these guys and... You know, we all sort of fell in love with each other's playing and attitude and commitment to music. And uh, Frusciante was playing with Felonious Monster, and Porno Papyros got our bass player from Felonious Monster. So ah. there was this uh, this great connection through Bob Forrest. And uh, going back to the gig that just happened, Bob called me and said there was a a party happening for a friend of ours, and. He was trying to get Fishbone and Janes and Chili Peppers and Thelonious Monster, get the whole 1986 crew back. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Chili's needed a drummer, so <laughs> Chad was not available. Wow. And I was like, well, of course, you know, when Flea was in Jane's Addiction in 97, that was such a great uh, time for me and Navarro and, and Perry to have one of our buddies in the band, and, and Flea took it so serious because, you know, he... He doesn't play with a pick, and all the James tunes were written with a pick, and he wanted to, you know, uh, he wanted to give the songs their due, but he also wanted to bring himself to the table. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, playing with Flea is just taking my drumming to another level. So that was a perfect fit. And then me and Flea and Fushante had a band called The Three Amoebas. And uh, no one really, I've only got the, the only recordings, you know, basically we played in a studio about 15 times. We never did a live show, but mm-hmm. I've got all the recordings. And it is That's some of the awesome. greatest, funkiest stuff ever. That's, yeah. uh, that was 91. So, you know, there was a lot of old friendships ready to burst. And, and Anthony is such a powerful front man and, and such a 
you know, giving musician on stage. You know, he lets his band go off and off and off. Yeah. So it was just a, a perfect a perfect fit for me, and and what a great afternoon. And and we did have uh, James and Fishbone and Thelonious and Chili Peppers and even. Uh, the guitar player from Sticks, Tommy Shaw, showed up. I got to play Renegade with Tommy. Nice. And uh, it was just a great afternoon of, of old friends and making new music together. So, yeah, it's uh, L.A. is a small scene as far as there's a lot of musicians, but if you go deep into the pool, uh, you know, there's a lot of the same players. You see them over and over, and, and you play with them over and over. Mm-hmm. And um, I've even done some band-in shows, the, the Mike Watt, and with Flea and Banyan, we had double bass. So we had Flea and Watt and me doing Banyan gigs, and Perry was singing, well, actually just reading poetry that day. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, there's a lot of lines that kind of get crossed and, and even erased, and we all like to play with each other. And, and of course, the commitment to their own band, and, and I love the commitment I see, you know, that Anthony and Flea have to each other since, who knows, since pre-high forever. school. yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, to see that kind of commitment to friendship and to music and to, you know, the the, the work ethic is just mind-blowing. And, and uh, you know, me and Navarro met when we were 14, and uh, I met Perry and Eric when I was 17, and, you know, I still play with these guys. So right. it's, um, it's really about, you know, keeping the friendships alive with, with a sense of humor and uh, <laughs> and having, you know, understanding that everyone's got their own life and we don't have to commit just to each other. But when you get on stage or get in a room together, that commitment comes straight to the top, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why playing and, and seeing some of those bands I've been in and playing with these cats, you know, it seems logical and, and, and just a perfect fit for me. But also it's the guys that I've been growing up with and it's the guys I like to play with. And um, and it's, it's a great feeling to get in a room with these cats, close your eyes, and go, okay, I'm 52, but it sounds like we're 15. <laughs> you know? <laughs> totally. It, it, feels, it feels like we're kids again. And I think that's the greatest thing about music and art. It really is timeless. I mean, an athlete sooner or later has to put his cleats out, you know, and, and put his glove out, and I can't play anymore. I can't keep up with the 20-year-olds. I'm 50. Mm-hmm. But a musician never has to quit. Right. And... And the, the great jazz players, and there's only a handful left from the original days. But, you know, they, Miles would surround himself with young electric players, and he would reinvent himself constantly because, you know, he would get John McLaughlin or, or Billy Cobham or, or Tony Williams in his band, you know, and all of a sudden Miles had a new sound and a new, and, and a new uh, I guess, a breath of fresh air into the jazz scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that holds true for rock and roll. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, the old guys were the jazz guys. Now, you know, Mick and Keith and Paul, and, you know, and Ringo, and they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at U two, you know, they've only got, uh, you know, they, even if they started in nineteen eighty, and the and the Stones started in sixty two, it's not that big of a difference now. Not I mean, now. they're they're no. older older cats playing rock and roll music, and they're, and they're playing it with heart. Yeah. I wonder, as you're telling the story about the the LA scene, and you know, it's Fishbone, it's you guys, it's the Peppers, and everything. I wonder how much that played into uh, Perry building Lollapalooza, and and how much did you have a part in Lollapalooza launching? Well, the the first Lollapalooza was a great combination of bands that we loved. 
but none of the bands could sell the tickets by themselves. Chili Peppers was 92, but the first Lollapalooza was 91. Right. But the, the, the first Lollapalooza we had, Butthole Surfers, Henry Rollins, uh, Ice-T and Body Count, uh, Susie, Living right. Color, Nine Inch Nails, uh, even the Violent Femmes and Fishbone joined up for three shows. It's not really talked about as much because they weren't on the original lineup, but they came in. And it was, um, it was a realization for not only promoters and the industry that this music now can sell tickets just as uh, the, the hard rock, heavy metal, Van Halen's and Motley Crue's were selling tickets. So, uh, but we needed this, we needed a, a package, so to speak, but we only had one stage. You know, the show started at one in the afternoon and then Henry came out, you know, and it wasn't a bunch of different stages and a different things happening all through and you got to, mingle from one place to another. It was mm-hmm. concentrated. Mm-hmm. But um, it really was about Jane's addiction and uh, seeing it sort of like the tip of the arrow. I mean, we needed the whole stick to be the arrow, but we were the arrowhead, and we were sharpened, and we were, uh, uh, you know, we had vision. And even in the L.A. scene back in the day before all this, the crowd was full of filmmakers and writers and and visionaries, today's, you know, today's directors were at the gig back then thinking about, wow, I'd make a movie out of this. This would be a cool movie, this scene, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think it was a, a, a collective and a, and a collaboration. And also it was global, pulling Susie out of England over here, you know, pulling Living Color from New York. You know, we, we tried to make sure that that actual tour represented everything that we thought was a quality and and had and in a sense, rock and roll doesn't really mean much. Except in my opinion, it means you know do it your way. And and Susie did not sound like Living Color, and they weren't going to do gigs together. Mm. The Butthole Surfers, you know, weren't going to do gigs with Body Count, but we did. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it was this beautiful, you know, it was like a it was like mixing at the bar, you know, what are you going to put some vodka, you know, to what, Long Island iced tea. There are seven different types of alcohol <laughs> in there, but it tastes good, you know? So yeah, we were totally. making the Long Island iced tea of, 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 a, of a show. And I am an athlete, and I love to play drums. So I would go to the gig at 1 and stay there all day, even though Jane's didn't get on stage till 9.30. Right. I was there all day, every day, and doing drum circles and getting together with all the musicians and meeting people constantly and, and, uh, you know, the word wasn't there then, but networking, really, you know, totally. and, and right, after, you know, right after Jane's Addiction, I was in Infectious Grooves, and all of a sudden I was hanging out with the new metal guys, the Deftones, and Corn and Limp Bizkit, and, and I was like, okay, this is a whole other world, you know, and, and it seems like if you, if you look deep enough into the musician's uh, circle, we all grew up somewhat with the same music, and hopefully our environment make us sound original. And a band from Seattle is not going to sound like a band from Miami. And, and a band from New York shouldn't, you know, Van Halen can never come from New York City. It's an L.A. band. Right. You know, and, and Living Color couldn't come from Los Angeles. It's a New York band. They've got a lot of, you know, jazz and, and uh, you know, you can hear the, the busyness of the streets go into their music, you know. So um, I think Lollapalooza was just a an understanding of what was coming around the corner and, and the world, coin, you know, the alternative word, you know, for me, alternative music was the Grateful Dead. And I love the dead. 
But, you know, if you wanted to get weird and go to a concert for four days, that was the alternative than going to a, a cheap trick concert for an hour and a half. Right. You know, <laughs> right. it was a real experience. You know, you went camping and you, you, you actually left home to see a dead show and didn't come back for three days. <laughs> but that was the alternative. Now, you know, the alternative music became the alternative to what people thought was the, the ticket sellers that were on FM radio. Right. And um, it was a, a team effort um, of, you know, Mark Geiger and Don Moeller, who worked at, you know, William Morris, or not, it was actually, I think it was Triad, was the booking agency. It might have been William Morris on the first Lola, but these cats were from Triad booking agency. And the, you know, the brainchild of, of not only Perry, but everybody in Jane's Addiction and what, what could be. And, you know, we were doing great gigs prior. Uh, James would play with Iggy and Love and Rockets and Psychedelic Furs and, mm-hmm. and some great bands, but these bands already had many records out and maybe already hit the ceiling of their, of their growth, you know. Uh, there was, we were just kind of a seed just sprouting. Now, unfortunately, we broke up after that. And, you know, for better or for worse, I think, you know, the porno record is just a, a great fucking record. I love it. Yeah. But who knows what James Addiction would have done if we stayed together. And, you know, I, I, I think back that we had a good manager, but a good manager wanted to keep us working. A great manager would have said, take a break. You guys have a future, man. You've got a real future. I mean, years. But, you know, a good manager's like, well, it's hot now. Don't stop. And we got burnt out. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to be together day after day for another five years. We just did five or six years. And so the break up seemed natural, but I think a good advice would have helped us, you know, or who knows if we would have listened, but, you know, <laughs> right. It, there's it, that too. <laughs> it, it, you know, that is, he was a put that into the, you know, into the story, but I think a great manager, Warner brothers was of course heartbroken. You know, they wanted to have, uh, one of the greatest bands and in my opinion, one of the greatest LA bands, you know, on their label to make many, many, many records. Right. And we made two for them. You know, when we signed to Warner's, they already had Sire under the umbrella, and Sire had Pretenders, Replacements, R.E.M., Ramones. Mm-hmm. And these bands were kind of the bands that we would have been playing with. Right. Uh, but Warner Brothers already had a record department and a radio department and a marketing department that would fit that type of music. But we wanted to be on Warner Brothers, and Warner's had Doobie Brothers and Van Morrison and they didn't really have the handle on what we were doing, but we knew Warner's was the, the company we needed to be with because uh, they gave us full freedom and uh, we didn't want to be in a, in a situation where Sire was not cookie cutter in any sense because the bands they had were all different mm-hmm. from each other, mm-hmm. but they had, uh, you know, they had a formula. They had, you know, their marketing team that was going to work the replacements and the same team would work REM and the same team would work, you know, the, the pretenders and, and we were different. And I Warner Brothers understood that with Lenny Warnerker and, and uh, Mo Austin at the time were running it. Mm-hmm. And they understood, hey man, we can't fucking dilute these guys. Let them do their own art, their own their own production, their own record covers. Let them come up with their own marketing ideas, mm-hmm. and let's see where this you know this punk rock attitude from L.A. Let's show the world the you know the late night L.A. You know because the Strip, even though it was pretty decadent, they would end at one a.m. The Sunset Strip, our scene would start at 1 a.m., you know? Right. 
it was a it was a different scene. Yeah, without question. So, I mean, you you think back to that time, uh, Stephen, and you know, unquestionably, Jane's Addiction were the biggest tastemakers of the time. Yeah, there was a a freedom and a and a genuine respect. We had the freedom to do what we wanted, and we were respected by our peers because they saw this hybrid, you know, me and Navarro were still just 18 and, and infatuated with hard rock music and, and a little more flashy playing. And Perry and Eric were over that, and they were listening to Echo and Joy Division and Susie and, and you know, a little, and not tame, but a little more decisive in the playing and, and less flash, mm-hmm. more about the, you know, the, the support of the, of this, it's almost cinematic in a way, those bands, you know, they put you in a place and you can visualize your, you're in some kind of, uh, you know, foreign room and Susie, I never, you know, Susie's voice or, or Ian's voice from Echo and the Bunnymen, they're all, it was different than the hard rock music that me and Navarro were biting into. And it definitely was a great moment and a hybrid and of what me and Dave wanted to put on the on the tape and what eric and perry wanted to put on the tape and there was james addiction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so and it was also you know we also were very we listened to each other uh, not only about our what we wanted to play on the on the instrument but what we were different people man i had a different record collection than perry and, and eric had a different record collection than dave you know it wasn't four of the same guys right oh as it should be though so I think, yeah i think that was really the the four not the the ingredients that made it uh, eclectic and unpredictable and a folk song mixed to a metal song, mixed to a punk song, mixed to a funk song. And that's okay. Cause that's James addiction. Right. And that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for you to go back to the beginning before you're in bands at all, what's the music in the Perkins house like as a kid? Like what are, what are the bands your parents are playing? Well, as a drummer, I was into jazz drumming and jazz musicians because there was so much, personality on these players and everybody sounded different you know mm-hmm. gene krupa with benny goodman sounded very different than elvin jones playing with coltrane and so i was chasing this jazz drummer dream mm. but most of the people most of the people in my world were listening to funk maybe you know jackson five james brown casey and the sunshine band the bgs you know disco was high i was okay. just 12 13 yeah. and and that that pulse and and the the need to get together it was a, the music was quite social if you think about the bands I just named the funk and and the, and the disco bands mm-hmm. it was it would bring people together to dance and jazz doesn't really do that you kind of sit in your room and put on the record and trip out and listen to the details of the musicianship so I was torn between wanting to dance and play the funky beat and get people to move to my drumming and to show also that I've got uh, something to say behind the kid. And I'm not just a, uh, you know, a metronome or a meter. I'm actually uh, a personality. Yeah. And so, you know, my parents, you know, they took me to a few concerts, but not much. Uh, we did uh, Neil Diamond a few times. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. And um, <laughs> I remember awesome hearing show. a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, I love Neil. And I, I, and, you know, even some, uh, I think about Dylan and, and, you know, some more powerful lyrically, you know, driven by lyrics and storytelling, folk music, the folk music. Mm -hmm. Um, My first concert was 1980. 
okay. uh, Queen at the L.A. Forum. Wow. And it was a real concert. I mean, this was one of the best bands of all time. And uh, the game just came out, but it wasn't about the game. It wasn't about, you know, Another One Bites the Dust and a crazy little thing called Love. It was basically a show of their old music mm-hmm. and a couple of the new songs. And I got to see them play the, the greatest of all tunes that I grew up with up to that point, being 13, 12, and 13. And I can still smell it, taste it. I can still feel it. It, it was like most of the bands back then. They didn't seem like they're from the planet Earth. Led Zeppelin and Queen and, you know, Stones and Beatles and even Kiss, they, they, they couldn't just be from your neighborhood and, pick and learn how to play. These guys were next level, mm. you know, and Later on, when I started hanging out on the strip and, and hanging with Tommy Lee and Stephen Piercy from Rat and some of those guys, then you start to realize, hey, it is possible. I can actually do this. You know, all I got to do is, you know, is get to it. Right. But, at that time, but, but when you saw Queen, like these guys were, you know, you couldn't just pick up an instrument and play like these guys. These guys <laughs> were next level. Totally. And uh, that, that uh, fortunately, that tour is now available you know, 10, 10 years ago, it was put out on DVD. Now, of course, you can just, you know, obviously just find it. Certainly. But um, that tour is documented so I can relive it. I think the show that they have uh, out, it was in Montreal. It was a Canadian show. So if they started on the East Coast, it was before the L.A. show. Or if they started on the West Coast, it was after. But it was the same set list, the same light show. And I can kind of relive my first concert this way. But um, it was... A feeling like I, I got to get more of this. Um, my, <laughs> you know, the jazz bands would never have something so spectacular, you know, and I would never get a, a chance to see some of my favorite jazz players. They passed away before, but I did bite and get to see Ornette Coleman and Elvin Jones and some of the greats, you know, but I didn't see all of them. I never got to see Train or Miles, but I did see the Train of Miles on Rock and Roll. I saw Freddie Mercury, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's, uh, many great concerts after that day, but they, they don't blur into one. I mean, you know, Super Tramp and Cheap Trick and even Genesis and Yes, I mean, they all stood out as, like, life-changing. Yeah. Because it's just, like, you know, unbelievable music and songs and, and a connection to, uh, you know, the youth. They, they, they had their finger on, on feeling, you know, not only were they mature musicians, but they sounded like they were still pissed-off kids. And, and I said that I can really relate to that, but the, the first show not only changed how I played drums, but how much I played drums and how much more I wanted to work at it. And, you know, sitting at a, a, I didn't have a snare drum or a drum set. I really just had a practice pad and pillows and was somewhat of a boring, you know, sonically, I didn't get much out of it, but rhythmically I can learn so much hitting a pillow. <laughs> so right. I went home and hit, hit the shit out of those pillows, those next, you know, after that Queen show, put on everything I can get my hands on and start playing more drums. And, you know, drum lessons every Tuesday and my drum pad got me to a certain level. The concert started taking me to another level because of the urge I had to, to do this. This was being inspired. Like, yeah. But like, yeah, like being a, a, a pretty good little league baseball player and then going to the, going to see your favorite baseball team at a beautiful baseball stadium. And you're Crushing like, it. This is, yeah, this is incredible. What yeah. a 
20,000 people screaming, a beautiful, it's a beautiful day, look at the field, look at this. I mean, this is, this is not Little League, you know? It's, so it gives you something to strive for. So the concerts definitely hooked me. Yeah. And, then, and then in high school, I thought I was a good drummer, but when I joined the marching band, there was 20 other drummers that did exactly what I could do. And I was like, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. So that, that competitive spirit of wanting to be first chair in the jazz band at the school or wanting to be the, the lead snare drummer in the marching band that, that leads the band in between the cadences, that was another reason to step on the gas. And I, and then in a competitive spirit, you know, in that athletics, you know, almost make it a sport, especially drums can be more sports-like than any other instrument. Mm. And you don't have to like a guy's band, but you can freak out on his drumming. Like, oh my God, that's incredible. How does a guy do that with his hands and feet? You know, maybe the song's not so high, but whoa, listen to that drum right. part. You know, like, well, the so, answer is just practice. Lots of it. Yeah, it's a lot of practice. And also, then I realized I don't want to replicate everybody. I don't want to... I, there's only so much I can do. I'm never going to be Stuart Copeland or Neil Peart. I can play their beats, but I sure don't sound like them. Yeah, so right. then I started to find my, my homegrown, follow that, what could I bring to the table? Like I was saying earlier, if you're from you know, Texas or Florida or from Seattle, you should bring that to the table. You should sound like that. And so I started to bring my L.A. influence right to my drumming and Growing up in L.A., having you know the drum circles at Venice Beach and seeing people dance, it was social. It was, it was a celebration. It was rhythmical. And then, of course, being next to Mexico, a lot of the Latin rhythms that are infused in the L.A. scene and, and the, the food is is hot and spicy, and the rhythms are hot and spicy. And and, and then the love for jazz and rock. You know, how many records could I buy? Now it's time to buy an African record, Latin record, and, you know, uh, an Eastern record with, you know, Rabbi Shankar and Zakir Hussein playing tabla. And let that infuse into my playing. And don't let that be on the back burner. If Navarro had a guitar riff, sure, the drummer from Phil, uh, the drummer from, you know, Phil Red from ACDC would play it this way. But what would Baba Tunji Alatunji from Africa do with this <laughs> guitar riff? Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. then I'd start to. I guess, you know, infuse and hybrid all these influences and also be surrounded by great players and, and Perry being such a great songwriter as far as his lyrics. You know, most of the bands I grew up were not writing lyrics like Perry. And uh, all of a sudden I had these lyrics I can connect to. and and But that would lead the way emotionally. And so here's an African rhythm against the heavy metal guitar riff with a poem about pigs and zen. <laughs> okay, now we're on to something. And then the bass yeah. player, Eric, was such a different type of bass player. He would play a riff over and over and over and never change. Do 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 do. That's all he does. Do 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 do. I was like, okay, it's like a, it's a pattern. It's not. You're not jamming. You're playing a certain pattern. Now it's my job to come up with a pattern that can match that. Mm-hmm. A pattern that can you know, uh, have the depth of that. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, and then, of course, being a, having support and, and everyone is supporting each other and open. To, cool, that's a great idea. You know, let's play with that idea for, opposed to, ah, uh, that's kind of weird, just stop there. I'm just the way, you know. No, you know what? That, that could be cool. Let's work on that. And even if it doesn't work out, let's play it over and over and over until it doesn't even make sense anymore. Maybe we'll get somewhere. Maybe we'll find something new. 
and that's that's difficult in music and in art, you know. And and I, I sometimes will think of Jackson Pollock before he picked up, you know, before he was actually throwing paint, he was using brushes like everybody else. There was a day when he said, "I'm gonna just throw the paint." Mm-hmm. And people probably thought he was fucking nuts. And you're like, "That's not art. You can't <laughs> throw paint." You know, right. but it was brave. It was very brave, and that was part of what was happening in in my world. We had a lot of courage to say, "Let's just try something." And you know, who knows what Jackson had to Pollock had to go through uh, through you know his friends and peers when he when he started throwing paint and put the brushes down. And but but before that, he was probably trying to be the best painter he could be with a brush. You know, right. but you know what? I'm, I'm feeling like I gotta throw it. I'm gonna just feel this right now. So I, I, I kind of think of like my, my, you know, my favorite movie makers, you know, Kubrick, of course. And how do you make a movie like Stanley Kubrick? You have courage, and you have the, the and you know, you you hear that he does one scene a hundred times. And I remember hearing the Beatles would do start, you know, Strawberry Fields twenty five times. And as a kid, I was like, it doesn't make any sense. How do you record one song twenty five times? But listen to Strawberry Fields. Yeah, fucking a. That's how you do it. You got to put the time in. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, I want to respect your time here. I told you I was, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. We're into close to a half hour here. Uh, But I do want to rip through a few, as you would imagine on social media, when I mentioned you were coming on to be a guest, there's a ton of uh, fan questions. So I want to get through some of these before I let you go, if that's cool. Absolutely. Okay, so Brad wants to know, he says, what's the craziest thing he's ever seen from the stage, any band? Ooh, (laughs) that's a good one. Well, there's a lot that goes into that question, but I tell you what really inspires me is those really big, big shows. And you're playing a song, and you see someone on a bungee jump 150 yards away. You see someone, uh, you know, they're not, watching the band they're experiencing their day but the band is is you can't get away from it we're still the soundtrack mm-hmm. and i love having that huge platform those big festivals to really get you know your music get people spirited up and they're doing things that have nothing to do with your song and they might be meeting their next wife you know their their future wife or they might be having a, a reunion with someone they haven't seen in 30 years, you know, and I love being a part of that uh, experience and bringing, you know, the, the, the music is a reason to be there, but it's not exactly the only thing that's happening in their life. But yeah, I mean, I've seen some crazy shit. I mean, Perry <laughs> is, is such a great front man because he's in the moment. He doesn't, you know, you have to keep an eye on him when you're playing the songs because it's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, guitar solo. It's what's happening in the moment, and then respect that, you know. And and you know, being in a band with Tommy Lee with Methods of Mayhem, and I, you know, he was singing and playing guitar, and I was on drums. Right. Uh, we had we had a one hell of a day. Uh, I don't think we belonged there. It was a super heavy metal festival out in Austria, and the band we were doing, Methods of Mayhem, was a full hybrid of hip hop and rock mm-hmm. and techno, even. And we were not welcome. <laughs> and 
shit was coming at us, glass bottles. Wow. These people hate these people hated us so much they were throwing their full bottles of alcohol, even though they fucking needed to get high. They're like, Fuck <laughs> it. Let's just get this fucking guy off the stage. And oh my god. We had a guy named Tilo who was actually emceeing with us and he went up there and was dodging bottles and nothing hit him. It was like God was blessing him. He went up there and he kept you know, he was on he was on point, man. He was still on the mic, dodging bottles, up and down. He was like a boxer and and, and that to me still stands out as like unpredictable. What's gonna happen? Are we gonna get our shit fucking kicked? are we gonna get our get our ass kicked or are we just gonna walk away unscathed and talk about this over and over? You know, and, and Jane's Addiction liked to sometimes plan stuff, but it never went as planned. Mm-hmm. And that's always kind of fun, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to say, okay, at this point in the song, we should have somebody come out and hang some hooks and suspend and uh, and see what happens after they come out and, and the response of the audience. You know, but I think my favorite moments are with my eyes closed, connecting with the music and then opening up and then and, and seeing people react and and you know it's not crazy but it is definitely uh it, it concludes my my journey in a sense that this is a, a great thing to do with my life is to get people to, to have a good time and to loosen up and to let them disconnect from all the bullshit that we're all dealing with mm-hmm. especially now with this darkness Totally. I mean, isn't it incredible, the the power of music? Yeah, I'm I'm so excited in a sense, once the shit goes through the fan, now that it's hitting it, to see what the next band and the next artist and the next musician, what what they come up with after all this pain and suffering and and uncertainty, what's going to come of it. And uh, there's going to be a lot of Jackson Pollock type musicians, you know. Mm, totally, a lot of paint flying. They're going to be throwing the. They're going to be throwing the paint. They're not going to be using a brush anymore. <laughs> totally, yeah, big time. Uh, Mike wants to know when you find time. What are you currently binge watching? Well, I'm very fortunate to have a young ten year old son. He keeps me away from TV. No, nice. And we spend a lot. Yeah, he's a guitar player, and he's a. He's a skater and he's an artist and he's a you know a writer and he's trying everything at ten. You know we don't want to push too hard and burn him out, but I'm really enjoying these times with him. Six weeks at home so far, uh, we've created a lot of good content together and a friendship that's really next level. And you know before this all happened, I was you know one of the few dads that would be at school because most dads have a day job. Sure. So I, I was you know the guy that brought him to school or picked him up and or he went to the you know if my wife wasn't busy i'd be glad to be part of the school you know event so i was always like that way but now it's been a real a real serious bond so when we get to tv either i let him pick something which is the last two weeks have been like a more of a jack black moment we've been checking out uh you know school of rock school over of Nacho rock Libre. so good <laughs> Still <laughs> rock, then not to leave Ray, then back, you know. Nice, yeah. But um, it, it, to me, it's uh, it's all about the spending the time wisely. So I really don't spend too much time on screen. Uh, it's either with the drum set or with the family. Mm. And then I'm trying to get some good sleep in. I mean, like all of us, the, the dreams are vivid, but they're not healthy right now. It's just too weird. I, the news is seeping into my dreams. I don't like it. So I'm trying to like stay very active until the very last moment where my eyes are about to close and 
if I am going to watch something, hopefully it'll be something funny and nothing, nothing uh, too real. Yeah. Or to get enough of that in your real life. Yeah. yeah. The fucking reality right <laughs> totally. now is so ugly. And do you get into the, the superhero movies? Are you, are you a big fan of all the stuff that's being released? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got some friends that are making these movies, which is always oh, nice. nice. And, oh, that's cool. You know, to see to see people making uh, movies that are a combination of fantasy and action and obviously the soap opera of, of friendships and relationships are still thrown into these movies. But, you know, the Spider-Verse movie was a fucking blast. Totally. Amazing and movie. I Yeah, and my 10-year-old digs it. I dig it. And... And it has all that. It's got that, you know, it, the relationships and the, and the dedication to each other. But then again, it's, it's a fantastic, you know, and also not too far from reality because, you know, there's got to be a parallel universe somewhere, it's I believe. Be. I mean, <laughs> how how do you explain, uh, you know, the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle? Well, yeah. Gotta be, that to me has that? to be another plane, dude. It has to be. And how do you explain even my, my drumming or James Addiction? How does that come into just, how does it happen? You have to, you have to realize that it's not all coming just from us. Right. It's got to be coming from another, another place. Has to be. And if you open your eyes, you know, and, and, and then close them, you know, maybe, maybe there's something there that we can grasp onto. And, and that movie, The Spider-Verse, was really an eye-opener for my kid. Like, whoa, this is... Mm-hmm. You can punch into another world. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> right? that's what that's what that's what music and art is. Totally, you're punching in. You're punching into another world. You got to be aware of it, man. Go for it. Trippy. Do you believe aliens have visited Earth? I mean, I don't think we are from here. I mean, there's no way we are. Mm. So maybe, uh, you know, we are. We are the aliens. I think so, man. I, I I don't think we belong here, and obviously they don't want us here anymore. <laughs> it's starting to look like that. Starting to feel like that. Earth Day is like asking us to leave. <laughs> Please get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. You guys, enough is enough. This is what, we, yeah, we asked the Earth what it wanted for its birthday. Yeah. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> and it gave us a big virus. Oh, man. Uh, crazy, crazy God, times. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to let you go, man. I, I don't want to occupy too much of your time. I really appreciate you taking the time here to, to, to join us, though, man. I'm a huge fan, as mentioned, from literally the get-go. Uh, and how about the power of social media? Like, straight up, it was just a tweet. Hey, man, huge fan. You want to be a guest on my podcast? And, and you're like, yeah, let's hey, do it. Hey, it was great. It was exactly the way it should work, you know? And I, that, that was the moment where I was like, cool, this guy's in do it let's move forward and there's a relationship a friendship yeah and now we're spreading we're spreading some information good information a good laugh for people and let's get you know let's continue we can do it again love and to. um love to and you know thanks and obviously keep me in the loop of anything i can do to, to make sure people here and you know about when yeah, it's coming we, we've, where got to a, it. we've got a pretty aggressive marketing team you'll be tagged once or twice a day for a few weeks so We'll get it up. Great. I sent you a photo as well. I'm sure you can find many, but there's Yeah, one. I'll probably dig around and find a few more. But uh yeah, appreciate that, man. You're easy to find online, of course. You're just simply your name at Stephen Perkins on Twitter. You are Stephen Perkins drummer on Instagram. I think that's, that's right. I think that's it, man. Have a great day and, and, and thanks again, Stephen. Appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. Have a good time up there. Okay, bye. The Toddcast Podcast on Toddhancock.ca.